Section 41, Part 1 of Chapter 8 of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blackstone. Book 1, Chapter 18, Part 1. Chapter the Eighteenth Of Corporations. We have hitherto considered persons in their natural capacities, and have treated of their rights and duties. But as all personal rights die with the person, and as the necessary forms of investing a series of individuals, one after another, with the same identical rights, would be very inconvenient, if not impracticable, it has been found necessary, when it is for the advantage of the public to have any particular rights kept on foot and continued, to constitute artificial persons, who may maintain a perpetual succession, and enjoy a kind of legal immortality. These artificial persons are called bodies politic, bodies corporate, corpora corporata, or corporations, of which there is a great variety subsisting, for the advancement of religion, of learning, and of commerce, in order to preserve entire and forever those rights and immunities, which, if they were granted only to those individuals of which the body corporate is composed, would upon their death be utterly lost and extinct. To show the advantages of these incorporations, let us consider the case of a college in either of our universities, founded ad studentum et orandum, for the encouragement of support of religion and learning. If this was a mere voluntary assembly, the individuals which compose it might indeed read, pray, study, and perform scholastic exercises together, so long as they could agree to do so. But they could neither frame, nor receive, any laws or rules of their conduct, none at least, which would have any binding force, for want of a coercive power to create a sufficient obligation." neither could they be capable of retaining any privileges or immunities, for if such privileges be attacked, which of all this unconnected assembly has the right or ability to defend them? And, when they are dispersed by death or otherwise, how shall they transfer these advantages to another set of students, equally unconnected as themselves? So also, with regard to holding estates or other property, if land be granted for the purposes of religion or learning to twenty individuals not incorporated, there is no legal way of continuing the property to any other persons for the same purposes, but by endless conveyances from one to the other, as often as the hands are changed. But when they are consolidated and united into a corporation, they and their successors are then considered as one person in law. As one person, they have one will, which is collected from the sense of the majority of the individuals. This one will may establish rules and orders for the regulation of the whole, which are a sort of municipal laws of this little republic, or rules and statutes may be prescribed to it at its creation, which are then in the place of natural laws, the privileges and immunities, the estates and possessions of the corporation, when once vested in them, will be for ever vested, without any new conveyance to new successions, for all the individual members that have existed, from the foundation to the present time, or that shall ever hereafter exist, but are one person in law, a person that never dies, in like manner as the river Thames is still the same river, though the parts which compose it are changing every instant. The honour of originally inventing these political constitutions entirely belongs to the Romans. They were introduced, as Plutarch says, by Numa, who, finding upon his secession the city torn to pieces by the two rival factions of Sabines and Romans, thought it a prudent and politic measure to subdivide these two into many smaller ones, by instituting separate societies of every manual trade and profession. 
They were afterwards much considered by the civil law, in which they were called universitates, as forming one whole out of many individuals, or collegia, from being gathered together. They were adopted also by the canon law, for the maintenance of ecclesiastical discipline, and from our spiritual corporations are derived. But our laws have considerably refined and improved upon the invention, according to the usual genius of the English nation, particularly with regard to sole corporations, consisting of one person only, of which the Roman lawyers had no notion, their maxim being that trespassiant collegium. Though they held that if a corporation originally consisting of three persons be reduced to one, see universitatis ad unum redit, it may still subsist as a corporation, et stet nomen universitatis. Before we proceed to treat of the several incidents of corporations, as regarded by the laws of England, let us first take a view of the several sorts of them, and then we shall be better enabled to apprehend their respective qualities. The first division of corporations is into aggregate and sole. Corporations aggregate consist of many persons united together into one society, and are kept up by a perpetual succession of members, so as to continue for ever, of which kind are the mayor and commonality of a city, the head and fellows of a college, the dean and chapter of a cathedral church. Corporations, sole, consist of one person only and his successors, in some particular station, who are incorporated by law, in order to give them some legal capacities and advantages, particularly that of perpetuity, which in their natural persons they could not have had. In this sense the king is a sole corporation, so is a bishop, so are some deans, and prebendiaries, distinct from their several chapters, and so is every parson and vicar. And the necessity, or at least use, of this institution will be very apparent, if we consider the case of a parson of a church. At the original endowment of parish churches, the freehold of the church, the churchyard, the parsonage-house, the glebe, and the tithes of the parish, were vested in the then parson by the bounty of the donor, as a temporal recompense to him for his spiritual care of the inhabitants, and with the intent that the same emolument should ever afterwards continue as a recompense for the same care. But how was this to be effected? The freehold was vested in the parson, and if we supposed it vested in his natural capacity, on his death it might descend to his heir, and would be liable to his debts and encumbrances, or at best the heir might be compellable, at some trouble and expense, to convey these rights to the succeeding incumbent. The law, therefore, has wisely ordained that the parson, Quatunus parson, shall never die, any more than the king, by making him and his successors a corporation. By which means all the original rights of the parsonage are preserved entire to the successor, for the present incumbent, and his predecessor who lived seven centuries ago, are in law one and the same person, and what was given to the one was given to the other also. Another division of corporations, either sole or aggregate, is into ecclesiastical and lay. Ecclesiastical corporations are where the members that compose it are entirely spiritual persons, such as bishops, certain deans, and prebendiaries, all archdeacons, parsons, and vicars, which are sole corporations, deans and chapters at present, and formerly prior and convent, abbot and monks, and the like, bodies aggregate. These are erected for the furtherance of religion, and the perpetuating the rights of the church. Lay corporations are of two sorts, civil and eleemosynary. The civil are such as are elected for a variety of temporal purposes. The king, for instance, is made a corporation to prevent in general the possibility of an interregnum or vacancy of the throne, and to preserve the possessions of the crown entire, 
for, immediately upon the demise of one king, his successor is, as we have formerly seen, in full possession of the regal rights and dignity. Other lay corporations are erected for the good government of a town or particular district, as a mayor and commonality, bailiff and burgesses, or the like, some for the advancement and regulation of manufactures and commerce, as the trading companies of London, and other towns, and some for the better carrying on of diverse special purposes, as churchwardens for conservation of the goods of the parish, the college of physicians and company of surgeons in London, for the improvement of the medical science, the Royal Society for the advancement of natural knowledge, and the Society of Antiquarians for promoting the study of antiquities. And among these I am inclined to think the general corporate bodies of the universities of Oxford and Cambridge must be ranked, for it is clear they are not spiritual or ecclesiastical corporations, being composed of more laymen than clergy. Neither are they eleemosynary foundations, though stipends are annexed to particular magistrates and professors, any more than other corporations where the acting officers have standing salaries, for these are rewards pro apora et labore, not charitable donations only, since every stipend is preceded by service and duty. They seem, therefore, to be merely civil corporations. The eleemosynary sort are such as are constituted for the perpetual distribution of the free alms, or bounty, of the founder of them, to such persons as he has directed. Of this kind are all hospitals for the maintenance of the poor, sick, and impotent, and all colleges, both in our universities and out of them, which colleges are founded for two purposes. 1. For the promotion of piety and learning by proper regulations and ordinances. 2 for imparting assistance to the members of those bodies, in order to enable them to prosecute their devotion and studies with greater ease and assiduity. And all these eleemosynary corporations are, strictly speaking, lay and not ecclesiastical, even though composed of ecclesiastical persons, and although they in some things partake of the nature, privileges, and restrictions of ecclesiastical bodies. Having thus marshalled the several species of corporations, let us next proceed to consider, one, how corporations in general may be created, two, what are their powers, capacities, and incapacities, three, how corporations are visited, and four, how they may be dissolved. Corporations, by the civil law, seem to have been created by the mere act and voluntary association of their members, provided such convention was not contrary to law, for then it was illicitum collegium. It does not appear that the prince's consent was necessary to be actually given to the foundation of them, but merely that the original founders of these voluntary and friendly societies, for they were little more than such, should not establish any meetings in opposition to the laws of the state. But, with us in England, the king's consent is absolutely necessary to the erection of any corporation, either impliedly or expressedly given. The king's implied consent is to be found in corporations which exist by force of the common law, to which our former kings are supposed to have given their concurrence. Common law being nothing else but custom, arising from the universal agreement of the whole community. Of this sort are the king himself, all bishops, parsons, vicars, church wardens, and some others, who by common law have ever been held, as far as our books can show us, to have been corporations, virtute officii, and this incorporation is so inseparably annexed to their offices, that we cannot frame a complete legal idea of any of these persons, but we must also have an idea of a corporation, capable to transmit his rights to his successors at the same time. 
Another method of implication, whereby the king's consent is presumed, is to all corporations by prescription, such as the City of London and many others, which have existed as corporations, time whereof the memory of man runneth not to the contrary, and therefore are looked upon in law to be well created. For, though the members thereof can show no legal charter of incorporation, yet in cases of such high antiquity the law presumes there once was one, and that by the variety of accidents which a length of time may produce, the charter is lost or destroyed. The methods by which the king's consent is expressly given are either by act of parliament or charter. By act of parliament, of which the royal assent is a necessary ingredient, corporations may undoubtedly be created, but it is observable that most of those statutes, which are usually cited as having created corporations, do either confirm such as have been before created by the king, as in the case of the College of Physicians, erected by Charter 10th Henry VIII, which charter was afterwards confirmed in Parliament, or they permit the king to erect a corporation in futuro with such and such powers, as is the case of the Bank of England and the Society of the British Fishery so that the immediate creative act is usually performed by the king alone, in virtue of his royal prerogative. All the other methods, therefore, whereby corporations exist, by common law, by prescription, and by act of parliament, are for the most part reducible to this of the king's letters patent, or charter of incorporation. The king's creation may be performed by the words cremus, erigimus, fundamus, incorporamus, or the like. Nay, it is held that if the king grants to a set of men to have gildum mercantorium, a mercantile merger or assembly, this alone is sufficient to incorporate and establish them for ever. The Parliament, we observe, by its absolute and transcendent authority, may perform this or any other act whatsoever, and actually did perform it to a great extent, by statute 39th Elizabeth C. 5, which incorporated all hospitals and houses of correction founded by charitable persons, without farther trouble, and the same has been done in other cases of charitable foundations. But otherwise it is not usual thus to entrench upon the prerogative of the crown, and the king may prevent it when he pleases. And, in the particular instance before mentioned, it was done, as Sir Edward Coke observes, to avoid the charges of incorporation and licenses of mortmen in small benefactions, which in his days were grown so great, that it discouraged many men to undertake these pious and charitable works. The king may grant to a subject the power of erecting corporations, though the contrary was formerly held, that he may permit the subject to name the persons and powers of the corporation at his pleasure, but it is really the king that erects, and the subject is but the instrument. For none but the king can make a corporation, yet qui facit per alium facit per se. In this manner the Chancellor of the University of Oxford has power by charter to erect corporations, and has actually often exerted it, in the erection of several matriculated companies, now subsisting, of tradesmen subservient to the students. When a corporation is erected, a name must be given it, and by that name alone it must sue, and be sued, and do all legal acts, though a very minute variation is therein not material." Such a name is the very being of its constitution, and though it is the will of the king that erects the corporation, yet the name is the knot of its combination, without which it could not perform its corporate functions. The name of incorporation, says Sir Edward Coke, is a proper name, or name of baptism, and therefore when a private founder gives his college or hospital a name, he does it only as godfather, and by that same name the king baptizes the incorporation. 
End of section 47